Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 to 22. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra, and poor. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Faye, and good morning once again to everyone. Um, I should say, we are slightly behind time, so if we close a little bit late, no one should say it's Femi that is preaching. It's always taking too long. I'm just saying. All right. But anyway, uh, nice to have you uh, for those who are with us for the first time. We've been going through a series, and it's a serious one, and Muiwa told us, um, the anatomy of, of sin. And today is going to be the second um, of that. So I just want to pray before we start. Lord, we ask you for your presence to continue to be with us, Spirit of the living God. We want to hear your voice. We do not want to hear the voice of a man. We pray that you will do your work as you speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Um, it was indicated in the prayer, but um, just the other day, Pastor Lawan Andimi was beheaded by Boko Haram. Robville Dalep as well, um, shot by Boko Haram. And they were ushered into the presence of their savior. These were heroes. As far as I know, they never denied Christ. Um, 
and they didn't show hatred towards their captors. Um, sadly, though, they were not the first. This has been happening for a while. And so when you think about the murder of Christians everywhere, how are we to think about it? What's behind that? Now, of course, last week, we said it's sin. Sin in the hearts of people, and that's true. And we saw how that sin came to be. We said we are also all born with the sin DNA. We saw how this started from the very beginning. There was a crafty serpent that deceived the first man and woman. But the Bible, from beginning to the end, says a bit more about how this sin multiplies. It's true that people are evil, but it says more about united sinful acts committed over time. So for instance, when you take the issue of the persecution of Christians, we can think about who in the book of Revelation is called the great prostitute. I just want to read some verses in Revelation 17 that tell us a little bit about that great prostitute. It says, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on, who sits by many waters. Notice that by many waters. And I'm just skipping verses here. There, then I saw, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. I saw the woman who was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the great prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Who is this woman? Uh, before you think it's just an individual woman, no, that's not what's happening. When you look at this book of Revelation that has uses pictures to be able to convey to us greater realities, you notice that this woman who is sitting on the beast, who has seven heads and ten horns, is also sitting on many waters. Now, the beast that she's sitting on were introduced to in Revelation 12, 13, and 13. That beast was instigated by a red dragon. Do you know who that red dragon is? I'll tell you, the red dragon was the crafty serpent in Genesis chapter. Now, all of a sudden, there's another part of this evil entity that was crafty as a serpent, but now we see as a ferocious red dragon. That ferocious red dragon is able to, he was able to bring together a particular beast. In fact, two beasts, one from the sea, one from the earth. But the one she is riding on is this one with seven heads and ten horns. But notice that this woman is doing something. Not only is she riding the dragon, she's also sitting on many waters. Now, we know the goal of the dragon, as we see later, but we also see here that she's riding that dragon to do what? With the goal of destroying God's people. Can you see it in verse 6? She's drunk with the blood of God's people. And how is she achieving that? Somehow through the dragon, but she's sitting on many waters. But what is the many waters? 
peoples, multitudes, nations, languages of the world. Now, time will not permit me to say too much, but the, the, the beast at that time is really the city on a seven, the city that is said the city on seven hills, which is Rome. And so at that time, that beast was being referred to as the Roman Empire. And so it was this spiritual entity that used the means of the Roman Empire, which was over many languages, many peoples, right? She was using this ferocious Roman Empire to be able to destroy God's holy people. Do you understand? In other words, this woman had been able to infect different peoples, infect an institution. Peoples, but the entire institution. Amen. What does this tell us? It is true that sin affects the heart of every human being. It is true. But that's not the only thing you can say about sin. Sin is able to affect institutions, peoples, and cultures. Amen. And so what we're going to see in this sermon is the reality of how systemic sin affects all of us. Because it affects us also in this city. And if we are to develop properly as human beings, remember, because there are about five different ways we can do that, we need to also see that we are, as products of our society, we need to be aware of how we may be affected by the cultural and systemic sins. And so this sermon is going to show us how we can identify such sins, fight their existence, um, fight their existence without having them affect us and do so through the gospel. I should say, it's not meant, it's, this is not meant to be a comfortable sermon. So let us go through it. We've titled it, Sin is Systemic. And there are three points. One, identifying systemic sin. Two, opposing systemic sin. Three, defeating systemic sin. Identifying systemic sin, opposing systemic sin, and then defeating it. All right, so let's start with the first one, identifying systemic sin. Now, as I said last week, other than being extremely talented in uh, football, um, I'm saying myself, um, also I did a lot of singing at some point, but I was too good for the choir that I had to stop singing there. Uh, some of you know me as a very good storyteller as well, but you know I don't want to start tooting all my, my qualities. Uh, but I did once have a life in uh, doing mathematics. I liked mathematics. I still like numbers. I like equations as well. And so because of that, with this first point, I want to show you how you can identify systemic sin through three equations, all right? Three equations. For those of you that did not like maths, now is the time for you to close your eyes. All right. Three, let's bring it up. Privilege plus sin is equal to oppression. Privilege plus sin is equal to oppression. Two, oppression plus people equals an oppressive culture. Oppression plus people equals an oppressive culture. And three, oppress an oppressive culture plus time equals systemic sin. All right? Now, this equation is at work in this familiar story that Faye read to us and is at work 
in all cases of systemic sin. Let us start with the text. Now, we're at the beginning of the book of Exodus. We didn't read the first seven chapters, but what, uh, first seven verses, but what it tells us is, after the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham had a son, which was in, who was Isaac. Isaac had two sons, but the election line was through a guy called Jacob, who was, whose name was eventually turned to Israel, who had 12 sons, and one of them, called Joseph, went into Egypt. He became the prime minister in Egypt, and then brought the whole family of Abraham's line into them. There were 70 of them. Now, over a period of time, hundreds of years in that place, they multiplied. They were fruitful and they multiplied. And they became a huge group of people. And then there was a pharaoh that came to power that did not know Joseph. That is how verse 8 starts. A new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Now, what we find in this context is, one, the Egyptians were more privileged than the Israelites. Why do I say that? For instance, take Lagos. The Yorubas are more privileged than the Igbos. Can I get an amen? amen. Because this is Yoruba land. Amen. I'm about. <laughs> see, see, see. All right, let, let, let's take that back. All right, Igbos are welcome. Hausas are welcome. Lagos does not belong to anybody. All right. So they say, all right. <laughs> but you couldn't tell that the way we come together here in Lagos is not, we knew the distinction between those who were Egyptians and those who were not Egyptians. Do you understand that? So as much as the Hebrews were sort of there in, 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 uh, in Egypt, there was no more Joseph again. People have forgotten about Joseph. Hundreds of years have passed. So... At least, according to when you think about the owners of the land, the Egyptians were more privileged than the Hebrews. Do we agree? But then there was even someone that was even more privileged than the average Egyptians. It was Pharaoh. Because notice it says that this Pharaoh, this new king, had come to power. In other words, he had power over the Egyptians, but also over the Hebrews. He was doubly privileged as an Egyptian that was in power. But with this privilege, what happened? He had a sinful motive. In verse 8, it says that, uh, verse 10, he says, let us deal. We must deal shrewdly with them. That is, the them are the Hebrews. And so this sinful motive mixed with his privilege led to what? Oppression. Look at verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress, oppress them. And so you have your first equation there, right? The privilege plus sin has now led to what? Oppression. Let's move on. Now, though it was moving to oppression, but Pharaoh needed to put the same oppressive uh, uh, motivation that he had, he was now going to spread it. In fact, he created a whole new economy and brought employment. But it was two different types of employment. Because as you see in verse um, 11, the oppression that came was going to create, uh, sorry, in verse 13 and uh, 14, uh, the, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, were um, put under harsh labor. So they had labor. But then he created another form of employment. He took some of his own people and he gave them work. They called them slave masters. 
And so now the oppression is not just with Pharaoh. It's now gone to Pharaoh's people, these slave masters. And what did that do? Well, in verse 13, they said they worked them ruthlessly. In verse 14 again, it says the harsh, the harsh, in, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So you see what has happened. The oppression started with Pharaoh, but now it has come down to numerous of his people, the slave masters. And now, all of a sudden, there is a culture that is developing. I well, said, well, it was only to a small group of people. Well, look at verse 22. It wasn't just the slave masters. In fact, Pharaoh gave this order to who? Look at the verse. Pharaoh gave this order to who? All of his people. That's what verse 22 says. No, I don't know why you're looking here. Verse 22 says, look at your own Bible. Don't look here. Verse 22 says, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. So now you have a system such that the, all the Egyptian people have now taken that same oppressive uh, mindset and now they are exerting it on all the Hebrews. It has moved to, from just being oppression in the mind of their ruler to now an oppressive culture with the people. What do you have there? Equation two, which says that oppression plus people multiplied <laughs> through a lot of people leads to an oppressive Let's move on. But this went on for a long time. In fact, if you go to verse 23 of chapter 2, verse 23 of chapter 2, if you go there, it tells us that this went on for a long time. How long was that time? Well, if you read the whole of Exodus chapter 2, but you then look at how uh, Stephen, when Stephen is giving his take of this in Acts chapter 7, and you read from verse 23 to 30, you put it with Moses' life. How long Moses spent in Egypt, because Moses was one of those children that was born, and it shows us that Moses was uh, 40 years when he fled Egypt to Midian, and then Moses spent another 40 years in Midian before he went back to Egypt. How long is that now? And in verse 23, it then says, after a long time, that Pharaoh died, the cry of the people went on to God. So this happened for 80 years. The oppressive culture now had happened for 80 years. You know what 80 years is? First of all, let me tell you, you can't answer that question because there's only one person in this congregation that is 80 years and above. Mama Sikwasi, she's the only one. So you don't know what 80 years is. But here's what you know. 80 years is more than your life. In other words, there were Egyptians and there were Hebrews that knew nothing else but slavery between Egyptians and Hebrews. Do you understand that? So slavery would have mixed into every fabric of their society. It would have mixed into every form of their systems. There are people whose father was a slave master and the father's father was a slave master. What do you think the grandchild is going to be brought up as? Yeah, exactly, that's the family trade. And so when you have a culture that has been transported over a period of time, all of a sudden, 
the sin, in the oppressive sin of that culture works its way into every nook and cranny of that society. That is when sin is systemic. In fact, you breathe and drink the water, you don't even know. You wouldn't even call it oppression. You will, Olumide will go and visit Festo and say, hey, come in, now who is that? It's my slave. He's just walking outside there. And he would think, and Olumide will say that Festus is a good man. He's a good slave master. Because when his slaves do wrong, he only flogs them five times. It's in the culture. And so the third thing, oppressive culture plus time equals systemic sin. You see, what was going on here was the sinful exploitation of ethnic privilege. You had the Egyptians, you had the Hebrews, they were different ethnicities. One had privilege over the other, and it was the exploitation of that privilege that was at work here in Egypt. But there have been other kinds of sinful uh, exploitations of certain kinds of privileges. Take, for instance, what's racism? Is the sinful exploitation of historical perceived racial privilege. I say historical perceived because it's not that there is actually something more advantageous, or but as things developed over time, certain races had certain kinds of advantages. What's religious persecution? Well, religious persecution is the sinful exploitation of religious privilege. What is elitism? Elitism is the sinful exploitation of socioeconomic privilege. And so where you have people who are wealthier, who have a, 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 a certain status above certain people, they are the ones that can talk to those people anyhow, and the other ones can never talk to them the other way around. What is elderism? You should know this one here. It is the sinful exploitation of what? Of age privilege. Hey, wait, wait, wait. When did they burn you? Am I your mate? You can, once you are older than somebody, you are always right. You must have a, a saying that an older person, he never tells lies. <laughs> you be like, oh, you like that is that is such a lie. <laughs> Have you met my older brother? But the one that really grips me, patriarchy. What is patriarchy? Patriarchy is a sinful exploitation of gender privilege. Let me give you a definition. Patriarchy is a socially oppressive system that exploits male privilege with the goal of maintaining male dominance in a society through the direct and indirect exploitation of females by denying them reasonable opportunities for growth at best and, subjecting, and subjection to various forms of abuses at worst. I've been reading a book 
one of the most difficult books I've had to read in my life. It's called Scars Across Humanity by a Christian woman called Elaine Stokey. It demonstrates how male privilege works with sin. Male privilege works with sin and how it affects, it has affected women globally. She writes chapters on, listen to this, she writes different chapters on these things, on these forms of um, uh, 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 female oppression. She writes chapters on selective abortion, to show you it starts from the very beginning, to female genital mutilation, to child marriages, to honor killings, domestic violence, trafficking and prostitution, rape, and then war and sexual violence. If you hear the stories, if you see the statistics, you, will, you cannot read that book without shedding tears. You see, it's true that sin is in the heart of people. Yes, it is true, but it's not merely that. In fact, take this quote that she puts. It's the staggering quote. Listen to it. As the, as, the, probably, as, the, as the statistics calmly tell us, acts of violence, a, a acts of violence to women aged between 15 and 44 across the globe produces, remember what it's saying, acts of violence to women aged between 15 and 44 across the globe produces more deaths, disabilities, and mutilation than cancer, malaria, and traffic accidents combined. She then says, the truth is that violence on such a scale could not exist were it not structured in some way into the very fabric of societies and cultures themselves. It could not continue if, we were, if it were not somehow supported by deep assumptions about the value of women or some justification of the use of power. Are you hearing this? You say, ah, well, you know, it's across the globe. Maybe it's not happening here. Mm. You know, just think, if you are saying that, just think, if you're a Yoruba woman married to a Yoruba man, and now you have become the daughter-in-law. As I'm saying that, some women are already shivering. As somebody said recently on Instagram, put an Instagram thread. It says, you know what happens, like me now, take me now. When, in fact, just even before I even got married, it wasn't even when I got married, just when I was getting, before I got married, when I went to my future wife's home, when they heard I was coming, when they heard I was coming, I couldn't stay in the house because I'm going to get married, but she and I can't stay in the house. They got me the house of the best person in their church to stay in, first of all. They got me a car, right, so that I could move around. Then when I came in, I sat down on a special chair. I got special food. It was always that, are you hungry for me? All the aunties came. They looked after me. Now that we are married, guess what? If I say I'm landing, they say, ah, Femi is coming. What food? What would you like to have? What will, do you get? Why? I'm going to my in-law's house. I am married to their, their daughter. So I deserve special treatment. Because when you go to your in-law's house, when you are married to their child, you deserve special treatment. What about the daughter-in-law? <laughs> when she's going, when she goes to the in-law's house, 
You know what the first thing is? When they say, ah, will you people eat? We say yes. They say, oh, yeah, now go and cook this food for us. <laughs> it was one, they said, the, the husband's sister was, she posted it on social media. She was angry that this her sister-in-law, she's stupid though. She said the sister-in-law saw her own mom, that is the husband's mom. The husband's mom was sweeping. And the sister-in-law passed as the mother was sweeping. Can you imagine what kind of stupid girl that is? To which you want to say, wait, 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 wait. Where were you now when your own mom was sleeping? If that kind of thing happens, you know what happens? They call a meeting. They come, ask her, what's wrong with you? Don't you have home training? Then they chastise the husband for not training his wife well. Imagine, the man is meant to train the wife. Just saying. For not training, don't, don't you know how to be a good woman? Do you see the double standards? And we don't, we see it as just, it's part of our culture. Exactly. It's an oppressive culture. Or the snide comments. In fact, let me tell you, let me give you seven, eight reasons, eight, eight, um, eight signs of the presence of patriarchy in a society. Eight signs. One, Denial. We actually say no, it's, it's not. Women are very fine. Ah, women are fine. Look at my wife. Can you see, do you know what the shoe I bought for her? You see your sense? <laughs> the value of a woman is according to the shoe or the car that you bought for her. But it was you that bought it for her, showing that you really do owe her. So we look the other way, or we minimize the issue. Deflection. Deflection here is we minimize the problem but we minimize the problem and the majority issues, I'll get back to that in the second point, but we maximize the error. When we report an issue, we try to find the error in the person's testimony. We overblow that, and by doing that, we deflect against the real issue that is there. Selective disdain. If a guy should disrespect, you say, ah, now wow, look at the way this person disrespected me. If a woman should disrespect you, can you imagine a woman? No, a person, you are disrespected by two persons. Why can't a woman disrespect you? Do you have self-respect? I'm not trying to say disrespect is a good thing, by the way. I'm saying it's the selective disdain. Oblivious participation. You won't even know. You are driving on the road. Who is this person driving? Who is this person driving anyhow? You know, look, you say, it's even a woman. <laughs> But you don't know that that you don't know that that is part of your participation. You just said you just said it. I have no evil intention in my heart. It's true. That shows you the presence of the thing there. You haven't done. There's no evil or particular motivation. But you are drinking from the water that every that is available in our society. Lack of authoritative redress. That is, the laws that we have are not up to date. The sentencing, the enforcement, I'm good, well, victim blaming and shaming, demanding uh, impossible evidence, high female illiteracy levels. Let me give you a scenario. And this one happens because the thing that, with all of these things, the one that hits me the most is domestic violence, domestic abuse and violence. But take, for instance, people often ask the question, this woman that has been complaining about her husband, emotionally abusing her, physically abusing her, are we sure it's true? You know why? Why is she still staying? Why is she still staying? If you're asking that question, permit me to help you with your ignorance. 
Imagine a culture where, from the very beginning, people have three children or four children. One guy, three girls. And they say the most important thing is for the guy to be educated. The women have to learn how to be good wives. So the women are now denied education, right? The guy is given an education. What the woman needs is a husband who is well educated. So by the time she is 16, they've made a pact. You see all the different elements. Low female literacy, uh, uh, high female literacy. So then there's a forced marriage. She now goes to this man's house. This man beats her. Was, I can't remember what, um, what country was. 90-something percent of the men said it is permissible for a man to hit his wife if she burns the food. So this man hits her, collectively abuses her. He just tells her, let's say even, it's even a modern society like Lagos, constantly abuses her, telling her she's not good enough, telling her all of these things. And then she has children for the person and continues to abuse her. And she tells her friends. And then people are saying, I don't think I believe her. Why? She can't go. If she goes, what's going to happen? If she wants to report abuse about the abuse, what she, what she, where is she meant to go? Let me ask you. The police. Let her go to the police. The policeman himself beats his own wife. How do you think he's going to look at this, madam? Now, it happens to everyone. You too. Like some men, some men, I have seen this before many times, and you probably have heard of this thing. A man cheats on his wife, and they blame the wife. Because she's not emotionally satisfying her husband. So the man, the policeman said, Madam, just go home. Let's, a broken home is not good. Do it for the children. So the police don't want to take it seriously. But if you find one police that eventually takes it seriously, let's take it to the courts. Have you looked at the laws? Where are the laws for emotional abuse? There's absolutely nothing there. Who is going to represent her? Also, the son, who himself also has three wives that he beats regularly, but he just provides them with trips to Paris and whatever. Who is going to represent them? Oh, by the way, if she can get a good lawyer, who is going to pay for it? The woman that doesn't have a business that for 10 years the husband has said she cannot work? But okay, maybe, maybe, maybe the people, the leadership in the church, the church is going to pay for it, and the church is going to separate and help her with the divorce. Except the church says that, the Bible says that you can never ever divorce somebody. Which family is she going to go back to? The family that's going to say, no, we have taken you to your husband's house, go back there. So you are now saying this woman that has no, no, no redress in the courts, cannot go to the police, this woman has no money, she cannot rent any place, she can't go to her, her parents' house, she can't go to the church, she can't go anywhere, where do you think she will go? And you're asking the question, why stay? At this point, it is not just the sinfulness of someone's heart that is working against her, it is an entire system. And that system needs to come down. That leads me to my second point, opposing systemic sin. If you are saying this seems more than just human, yes, you are very correct. It is more than just human. You see, when you look at the slavery in Egypt, you can say, well, it's Pharaoh. You can say all of those things. It's true. But if you read the Psalms in Psalm 74, 
If you read Ezekiel in Ezekiel 29, what it says is though we see what is happening humanly, we also know that there are spiritual entities, diabolical entities behind it. In fact, he calls it the Leviathan, the sea or the monster of the sea. And so in, in Psalm 7, 4, 13, 14, who, it was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you, you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave its food to the creature of the desert. So he's talking about what happened at the Red Sea, and he's saying the monster was in Egypt. It's even more specific with Pharaoh in Ezekiel 29. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak to him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lying among the streams. You say the Nile belongs to you. Me, I made it for myself. So, when you talk about patriarchy, don't just look at it as men. There is a diabolical power behind it. But I want to tell you something. Why face it? You know why? You should face it. Secret. Just a secret. Oppressors are also fearful. They are scared. They're not as powerful as you think. Look at verse 9 again. What motivated Pharaoh to bring about slavery? Look, he said to, the, all, to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with, shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. What motivated him was not because he was powerful. It was because he was weak. Abusive husbands are what? Weak. Bullies are always weak. It is because they have privilege, they exploit the privilege to, show, to mask their weakness and stay in control. So in other words, why should you oppose them? Well, first of all, we are called to be agents of good to fight against evil. But here's the point. The agents of evil are scared. That's why we don't back down. So I want to give you four different ways through which we can oppose. Four. Don't deny it. Pray about it. Maneuver around it. Directly oppose it. Don't deny it. Now, though brought up in Egyptian royalty, because Moses was taken by Pharaoh's daughter, Moses did not deny the plight of slaves. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. You know, eventually he fought that guy and killed him. In other words, Moses was aware of it. Listen, guys, the privilege far too often denied the systemic oppression of victims. And one of the chief ways we do this is somebody will now come and say, don't you know that men too are suffering? All this feminist noise. You don't know that men too are suffering. To which I want to say it's true. In fact, I can tell you that I am sure that there would have been some Hebrews that were enjoying. You know, later in order the Roman Empire, we had people called tax collectors. Tax collectors were Jews. They were just Jews that were working with the Roman system. And that's why they hated them. So there will have been Jews in this slave economy that will have been joined. And I am sure if you looked hard enough, you will have found some Hebrews and some Egyptians that were also suffering. But that does not 
deny the fact that in general, in general, the plight of the Hebrews as a whole was worse, was far worse off than Egyptians. Listen, it's for no reason that we do not have a category of study called selective male abortions. It is for no reason that nobody ever talks about MGM. What's MGM? Male genital mutilation. Have you ever heard of that? Precisely. Because it doesn't exist. It's for no reason that most people, we don't talk about male domestic violence. There are no categories. The reason is because they are nowhere near as rampant. Stop denying it by deflecting. Because listen, the silence of friends hurts more than the words of enemies. The oppressed need empathy. They need the empathy of the concerned privilege, not their unreasonable scrutiny. Second, pray about it. If we go to chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 23, 25, you hear that the groan of the people came up to God. And it was because of that God was moved to respond. You see, we need activist mindset intercessory warriors. We are far too comfortable in this church when it comes to praying. And we say it's not by, it's not by Jim Jim. It's not by Jim Jim prayer. You know, we like to say that it's not by Jim Jim. Just speak a silent word and God hears you. Have you heard of the importunate woman? Let me tell you something. You can criticize my theology. I don't care. There is, there is the effect of Jim Jim prayers. There is. Elijah was a fervent man. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous word availeth much. If you like, come, come and meet me outside after that. But if you have been suffering slavery for 80 years, 80 years, you go, oh, Lord God, will you deliver us from this slavery? <laughs> and you say, he just hears the word of the... The groan moved him. Activist, activist-minded intercessory warriors in every generation. We need unceasing prayers against injustice. And then you ask me, for how long? I say, as long as there is injustice present and until something happens. But we've been praying for so long. Continue to pray. In other words, we don't stop praying as long as there is something to pray about. Let me tell you a story. It's about East Germany in the 80s. It was especially hard to be a Christian under one of the most repressive regimes in the world, communist East Germany. Most people on minimum wages were cynically supplemented by daily bottles of vodka from the government, and with almost nothing to do after work but drink the stuff, resulting in those brought up under it belonging to a broken generation of men reduced to alcoholic dependency on their jobs. It was a terrible place to be in. Germany behind the Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall. But in 1982, a pastor named Christian Führer called people to pray for peace every Monday night. At the start, there were often less than a dozen people, but they persevered. Seven years later, in 1989, 8,000 people crammed into the church. Outside in the streets and in other churches, there were as many as 70,000 people, the largest impromptu demonstration ever witnessed in East Germany since it had been formed after the Second World War. With so many people expressing their protest in prayer, the state was, was preparing for anarchy. In fact, they had threatened to shut down the prayer rally down that, uh, they shut, uh, threatened to shut down the prayer rally that very night with whatever means necessary. So much so 
that doctors were setting up emergency clinics expecting a bloodbath. Surely this was crazy. Attempting to fight military hardware with prayers? Or perhaps looking at the crowds, cradling candles like stars, and for a moment their voices all crescendoed. Perhaps it was the authorities who were crazy to fight prayers with guns. One way or another, they would soon find out. Surprisingly, the police never opened fire. Within a week, the peace prayer rally had grown to 120,000, and the East German leader had been forced to resign. Within a fortnight, the prayer rally attracted 300,000 protesters, and within a month, four weeks later to the day, the Berlin Wall came tumbling down. Some journalists and historians have identified these prayer rallies as the tipping point in the fall of East German communism, a remarkable acknowledgement for a movement that began so quietly seven years earlier with a handful of people at a prayer meeting. One communist official made an extraordinary, unguarded admission to a journalist. We were prepared for every eventuality, he said, but not for candle and not for prayers. A great theologian, Karl Barth, once said, that to clasp the hands in prayers is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. We know that God answers prayers. How long do we pray? Until something happens. Third, maneuver around it. You see, the oppressed need to be deft in maneuvering around oppressors, like this Hebrew woman did with Pharaoh. When Pharaoh told them to kill, they didn't kill, but they went to Pharaoh and they said something like, ah, you know, <laughs> these uh, 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 Hebrew boys, they are very, very funny. You know, they, uh, they what they said about that, they said that, I can't even find it again. Well, ah, they said the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Did they lie to Pharaoh? He deserved to be lied to. What kind of thing is that? You see, they knew, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. But they also knew that sometimes you are more effective not by direct engagement, but by deft maneuvering. Sometimes, powerless and outnumbered women, right, in, uh, in, in organizations where you feel that you are marginalized because you're a woman, you have to be deft in that organization. You work through the structures of the system patiently to rise to power before you can effect change. Rather than going around making noise about injustice and you lose your job before your first promotion and the opportunity for you to effect any change. You may have to endure. But when you endure and you get some power, you get the power and then you empower women coming after you. And the more those women come into power, and the more the, uh, they, their voices are heard, the more that system of oppression within the organization can come tumbling down. Sometimes you have to be strategic and deft to be able to maneuver around the system. Are we together? Yes. Women in abusive relationships, if you entered an abusive relationship and it's already one or two years, and you don't have an education, try to get one. If you don't have a business, try to get one. Open your own account. Because the person, if you don't, the person that's controlling you, because he controls your pocket, he would also control your living. Finally, directly opposite. 
Now, the fact that some people are not called, not all people are called to confront the system directly, doesn't mean that no one is. Notice, Moses, who became the human deliverer, he did not spend one day as a slave. Do you notice? And yet, Moses was Hebrew. In other words, Moses was like them on one hand, and Moses was unlike them on another hand. He was privileged. Moses was privileged. And Moses understood that privilege is given for service, not exploitation. Thus, to fight the patriarchy, on the one hand, we need women who have been already empowered from the outset. Intellectually empowered, financially empowered, whether by inheritance or something, those women should be at the forefront of helping other women that don't have voices. Do you understand me? Because they are women like them, but they are unlike them in that they are not disenfranchised. But even more importantly, and listen to this, even more importantly, if you want to see effective fight against patriarchy, do you know who you need? Men. Men. <coughs> unlike women because you are not women. But like them because both of you are created in the image of God. Listen, unless those who are in the privileged class oppose the system that supports them and they benefit from, you will not see any breakthrough. Blacks needed non-racist whites. The poor need empathizing a list. Women need men to step up, stop denying, rise up, and fight the patriarchy that serves them. And that's why I have to say to women and those who have a feminist bent and the different forms of feminism, whatever, men are not your enemies. The moment you categorize all of them as your enemies, you may just have turned against your ally. What you need is to convince we need to be united together. Men who see the issues, you need to come together for us to come against this system. And this is not men, uh, for the men that are here that I'm not... I am a man. I love being a man. I, if God asked, if I, I ask God, if he said another lifetime, what should you come as? I want to come as a man. So I don't hate my gender. But for the flourishing of my gender, I need the other gender to flourish as well. And so we must directly oppose it. That brings me to my final point, defeating systemic sin. With all of the things that I've said, we need an abolition of all oppressive systems. But what really this means is that we need the destruction of the system, we need deliverance for those under it, and we need transportation to something better. In other words, what we really need is a new order. What we need is a new kingdom where the oppressed and the oppressor are restored through justice. And when I mean restored, I mean the oppressor, the oppressed needs rest, uh, healing and renewal and the oppressor needs forgiveness and change if they are repentant. And though those four steps I just mentioned are really important, incremental change cannot eventually bring a total new order. What you need is a deliverer to deliver us and take us to that kingdom. When God sent the people uh, to, when God sent Moses to, to Israel, he was that deliverer. He was, um, he was privileged, he was empathetic, and he was powerful. And he, the, the, the task that God gave Moses was to not just break slavery, but it was to take them where? To another kingdom. Take them from the kingdom of slavery to where? The promised land. But as empathetic as Moses was, Moses was never a slave. 
As privileged as he was, Moses was never an Egyptian. As powerful as he was, when he devastated the whole of Egypt, Moses could take the people out of Egypt, but he couldn't take Egypt out of them. So that when they got into the promised land, the very people that were delivered, they set up oppressive systems as well. Moses did not have the power to change their hearts. Moses did not have the power to give the oppressed justice that they needed. Because Moses was pointing to another deliverer. And who is that? I present to you Jesus Christ on a cross and on a crown, with a crown. You know why? Remember, the deliverer we need has to be what? He has to be privileged, he has to be empathetic, and he has to be powerful. Listen, you don't get more privileged than Jesus. Because Jesus was not financial, just financially, more financially privileged. He wasn't just more socially privileged. He wasn't more ethnically privileged. Jesus was divinely privileged. He's God. And with that privilege, what did he do? He saw the real need. What you do with privilege is not to exploit, but it is to serve. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve. But Jesus was very empathetic as well. Because though he's divine, he became a human being. He was misunderstood, mischaracterized. He was persecuted. He was rejected. And guess what? He suffered under a corrupt judicial system, a sham trial. And he was killed in the most repressive way. Because the cross was the Roman Empire's way of saying, if you ever cross us, we will put you on a cross. But you see, don't you see the empathy? The cross tells you something if you are an oppressor or you are the oppressed. The cross tells you if you are the oppressed that God cares. If you are the oppressor, he says that he is angry against your sin. The cross says that he feels your, the pain of the oppressed, but he also atones for the sin of the oppressor. The cross says that he suffered the consequences for the wickedness that the oppressed received, but for the sin and the wickedness that the oppressor gave. Are you looking for justice? The cross is your justice. Justice for the oppressed and justice for the oppressor. Listen to what Hebrews 2.17 says. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. But if the system could defeat him, if the system could kill him, he's not powerful. But you see, Jesus is powerful. Oh, so powerful. So powerful because in that very death and the resurrection, he eventually broke the power of the dragon. You see, by enduring the most oppressive system of all, which was death, and rising from the dead, he conquered death through death itself. Jesus rose from the dead. And by conquering death, by rising from the dead, he rose to be enthroned in heaven. And now the kingdom that you are looking for, Jesus has started it. And the power of that kingdom brings healing to those who are oppressed. And he says you have the power to change to the oppressor. 
Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You no longer have to fear being identified by your oppression. You no longer have to fear being identified by your sin if you repent. So we put it in Hebrews 2. Since the children were far flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. What if Jesus were inserted into that equation? I think Jesus will redeem it. Because privilege plus Jesus equals service. But service plus Jesus' people, those in the kingdom, the oppressed that have been healed, the oppressor that has been forgiven and changed, it will lead to a just culture. But as we wait for his coming, as we look forward to his coming, the just people plus Jesus' time will equal God's kingdom. Let us bow our heads and pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.